Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk to the incredible Mr. G, Ben Gundersheimer, my dear friend, and just an incredible songwriter and performing artist whom I love dearly. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Today, I have Ben Gundersheimer, a Grammy award-winning artist, author, activist, and educator. Uh, full disclosure, uh, Ben is also a good friend, a longtime friend. Uh, and, and you might know him as Mr. G, the bilingual rock star, according to Was the Washington Post. Um, and uh, uh, wait till you meet him. He's super cool. Ben, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you so much, Bruce. Great to be with you. Your career is incredible and so interesting. And you are an entrepreneur. Uh, you're a gifted songwriter. Um, you've written books. You've done so much. Um, but uh, for those who don't know you, uh, what's your story? Can you just let people know how did you end up where you are? I was sort of predisposed to, I suppose, be an entrepreneur uh, in the sense that from the time I was a little kid, I knew I wanted to be in the music industry. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew, well, frankly, and I know you're a big baseball fan. I, I announced to my parents at the age of three, when I grew up, I wanted to be a baseball player and a musician. I was pretty determined to follow those paths as long as I could. And so that ultimately ended up necessitating some entrepreneurial moves. And, and, and you, you are a baseball player. Um, I know uh, at this point you don't probably get to play much, but I know you've played college baseball. Well, that's just as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm happily retired, but yeah, uh, that was a big, a big passion for me. And ironically, we can get into this, but the fact that I speak Spanish uh, and ended up incorporating that into my music is directly related to my love of baseball. How did a Jewish kid from Philly end up writing songs in Spanish and winning a Latin Grammy? So, yeah, how did that happen? Well, uh, when it came time to pick a language in junior high, the options were French and Spanish. I didn't know anyone who spoke a word of Spanish, but at that point I was had this clear vision that ultimately I was going to be a major league baseball player. Delusional for sure, but that was the the concept in the moment. <laughs> and uh, so it seemed like Spanish was going to be the more utilitarian choice because ultimately I'd be able to communicate with my teammates, future major league teammates from, you know, Mexico and Guatemala and Colombia and all. And uh, so that's how I started taking Spanish and I loved it and kept up with it through high school and college, but it never served me in in the baseball endeavors, but it's ended up ironically being a big component of what I do with, with music and particularly music for children and families. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you are, um, if I may say, uh, a spectacular guitar player and a great songwriter, and you, you have a, um, a gift uh, for performing and uh, you can perform adult music, no doubt. And, um, uh, but, but you uh, really have become uh, like a rock star for children. And how did that happen? Well, like so many of the things that have happened in my, in my career, you know, I had this sort of grand and obscure vision, but the way things have played out, I've been uh, organic and unexpected. So for example, with writing and performing for children, that was never on the radar in any 
respect whatsoever for many years. After we went to college together, I embarked on a career writing and performing for grownups, which I did for many years, and ultimately got to a point where I was getting disenchanted with the music industry and frankly, quite burned out. Uh, so I went back and got a master's in education with the intention of transitioning out of music and becoming an elementary school teacher. And the abridged version of this story is I started writing songs for my elementary school students. They called me Mr. G, by the way. That's how the name came about because the name Gundersheimer seemed like a cruel thing to impose on children. So I just said, call me Mr. G. And uh, started writing songs during lunch and at recess just to entertain them. And that's how the first Mr. G album came about. And then uh, a year or two later, I was on my honeymoon. We were in Columbia and I wrote some songs on the beach for some kids who just stopped by because they saw that I had a, a mandolin with me and it's, you know, we're on the beach in Columbia. So I made up a couple songs in Spanish on the spot. That's how the first bilingual sound came about. At that point, I had no idea there was something like a Latin Grammy for, for children's music. So so many aspects of the way things have unfolded have been surprising and um, challenging at times for sure, but ultimately really gratifying. I mean, it's amazing how entrepreneurial, creative people so often tell the story of their spectacularly successful careers as a series of accidents. And, um, but, but I guess you have to recognize a fortuitous accident for its promise in order to tap into it. Is that what happened? You know, I'd take it even, I'd, I'd use probably in my case, a stronger word, like a, a series of failures, at least failures from the way I constructed what my goal was. You know, I'd had this vision of being a rock star in a certain mode and model. Uh, and when, when that wasn't coming to fruition, I was making a living as a musician playing clubs and theaters and all around the country and all. But I have to say, part of the, the concept that I'd had in terms of my idols as musicians from when I was a kid were musicians who used their platform, you know, had a social justice, had an activist side, were using their their voice literally and, and metaphorically to make a, a difference in the world. And I wasn't seeing that happening the way I conceived of the way I wanted my life to play out as a musician at a certain point, at least to the extent that I envisioned. And so... That was an idea of like, well, if I become a classroom teacher, I'll have these 20 kids that I'm with all the time and really can try to do something, do in, in my own fashion, you know, something good in the world. And then the, the way the music played out, it's ended up being this extremely gratifying way of impacting children, but also by definition, parents, grandparents, teachers, uh, it's extending past, you know, the audience in a multi-generational and also international way. So ultimately, yeah, it ended up being kind of the life that I, that I had envisioned, but in a, with a different slant on it. I mean, you know, those are pretty grand ambitions. And then, you know, to say, okay, well, I'm going to go uh, study education. I'm going to go uh, get myself qualified to teach young people. And then somehow you found yourself writing songs for them. You found yourself entertaining them. I mean, one could say 12 albums uh, and a Grammy and Parents' Choice Gold Awards later, you know, you tour all over the world. Um, even during the pandemic, um, uh, you, you, you start doing Mr. GTV. You know, from from the outside, it's always seemed like one success after another. 
Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I'm a fan of your podcast and your work. And of course, keep have conversations with people that I cross paths with who ended up in a certain place in life. And I'm always surprised as, you know, clearly you are when people who are, uh, have, have achieved X, um, talk about the struggles along the way. It's just been, uh, it's interesting always to hear, you know, your perception that it's been one success after another certainly hasn't felt that way all along. And, you know, it's, it's felt so often like a struggle and, uh, and it has been, frankly, I mean, it's, it's a tough industry. Um, it's just been, when I think back on it, just how the challenges and the obstacles have ultimately pointed me in a direction that's, I think, more gratifying than certainly what I had originally imagined in terms of like a professional track. Yeah, let's talk about that. What do you think about building on failure? I mean, I sometimes think, you know, I've now given like 2,000 speeches all over the world to organizations of all shapes and sizes. The first time I got paid to get up and give a speech to a bunch of business leaders, it was a disaster. I mean, a disaster. And that is not a story I tell very often. Um, And I don't know if I learned a darn thing from that disaster other than, wow, Bruce, you got to really rehearse before you get in front of a bunch of business leaders who are paying you to give a speech. But, you know, luckily that was 30 years ago or 27 years ago. But what do you think it is? I mean, is is building on failure? uh, um, I guess you got to strike out a lot to hit a home run. But but what's your perspective on that? How do you... is everybody able to do that? How do you take what feels like a disappointment and use it as a building block? I mean, I feel like that's all I can say. Is you only really know your own experience truly. And to me, it's like, it's about, you know, it's overused these days in my opinion, but grit really comes down to determination. Like how committed are you to getting to that next place. And, you know, to go with your baseball metaphor, you got to strike out a lot, you know, that I, I think it's interesting, like a sport like that, where if you succeed 30% of the time, you're an all-star. Well, that's a lot of failure. And I think that was all good training. We, you mentioned uh, going to Amherst together and the coach there was really tough, like really hard on me. It's kind of tenacity. Like there were a lot of people who I started playing college sports with who quit. And, you know, I don't blame them. The guy was tough to play for, or certainly countless people I've known along the way who were talented musicians who aren't doing it anymore. It's just at some level, you know, I could even say, you know, how masochistic are you? Are you glutton for punishment? You know, like how, but another way to frame it is just how determined are you to get to that place? Yeah. I mean, and so here you are. Okay. Let's say you find yourself teaching children and uh, somehow you're drawn to uh, play songs for them and uh, you, you, you're you drawn to write songs for them. You're sitting on the beach in Columbia and somehow you're drawn to craft a song uh, right there on the spot in, in Spanish, uh, not your first language. And I have to say, uh, the image I have of you doing that in both cases is with that great big smile on your face. Um, you, ha- you have this uh, uh, infectious smile and you just look like you're having so much fun. And, and um, was it fun from the beginning or at what point did you realize, wow, here I am bringing joy to these kids, uh, and, and teaching them something along the way. 
Yeah, and I'm, thank you so much for those kind words, and 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 also it, I'm glad you took it in this direction because you know I've talked already about like grit and determination, but really the driving force for me is joy, uh, both the joy I get from creative work, the joy I get from sharing that and having that real time experience with an audience, the joy I get working on my own in my studio. You know, there there are all these different aspects of the process, some which are very internal, some which are very performative. Uh, but yeah, it's total joy to like have children to just a- approach me on a beach in Colombia and fat be fascinated with what's that instrument and get a little conversation and then just started playing some, you know, some rhythms and they're dancing and delighted. And then, you know, that process and writing some, asking them, Hey, what should I write a song about? And they say, uh, La Playa, the beach. And I wrote this song on the moment called Vamos a la Playa. So that, that interactive in the moment spark is really, and that joy has been really the sustaining factor. And so that has helped me overcome, I think, uh, the parts that have been really challenging and, and painful at times. And did you have to discover that joy or, um, you know, sometimes people say, and I, I wonder what you think about this, you know, oh, you know, you have to find your passion um, but at what point did you realize that that would be your passion, uh, doing a multicultural uh, music and education for children and their families? Well, just in, in the macro sense, in terms of finding the passion, like I said, I think that was really innate to me. Like I was just, I loved sports so much. So I, you know, I love baseball specifically. And then I love music so much and just begged my parents for years to get a guitar. And by the time I got one at nine, I felt like it had been forever, you know, and then instantly started writing songs. So I did, I'm fortunate in that I was not someone, I've never been someone where my challenge is finding a passion or uh, whatsoever. My challenge has been finding the outlet for it and turning it into like a viable vocation and having it feel like it's worthwhile work in the world. But, you know, in terms of that moment, sort of a sense of working with children in 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 the way it evolved with this multicultural element, again, that was so organic. Like if we hadn't been in Colombia on our on our honeymoon, who knows if I ever would have written songs in Spanish. But once that happened, I put a couple of bilingual songs on the next Mr. G album. There were people, there was one called Chocolala La La that people really enjoyed in the live show. So, and then subsequently we happened to be in Mexico the next year. So I wrote a few more and then uh, made a whole album of bilingual songs and there was a big response to that. And so I made several more and, and, and with those projects, I started collaborating more with terrific musicians from all over Latin America that began this whole multicultural element, which then extended to musicians from Africa and Asia and the Middle East. And it's just been a kind of a wild ride, but not one that I could have ever uh, scripted or anticipated. And so it's, it's seeing opportunity. It's, it's uh, uh, running with it. When you see that opportunity, it's tapping into the joy and, and running with it. Um, uh, I can picture all of that. At what point did, you know, how do you, uh, uh, make the connection to a livelihood and a career. One of the things I like to, you know, I, I always tell the story when I was a kid, um, I played the guitar, not very well, but you know, and, and I wanted to be a rock star, <laughs> you know, we see where that went. And, and, and I remember my mother saying, well, you know, you could be a lawyer and, and, or something. And, and then you could do music as a hobby. 
And it would still be really great for you that you can play the guitar and it would be fun. And I, I remember thinking like, mom, you totally don't get it, <laughs> right? Like what would be the point if I weren't a rock star? But at what point did you realize like, wow, I'm going to need to recruit a team. Uh, I'm going to need to run this as a business. There are all kinds of logistical details. There's money that has to change hands, you know, and as soon as people start paying you to do stuff, you know, then you got to deliver, right? Because they're paying you. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was late to, to the party in terms of understanding that there were, you know, even, <laughs> I mean, I launched into this sort of singer songwriter career actually during college, during summer breaks in college. And then right after college, that was like hustling up shows at bars. And one thing led to another with that. And then, you know, with the Mr. G thing, the, the shows, the business started literally with my students, their parents asking me to play birthday parties, then local coffee shops, like pass the hat stuff. <laughs> and then with each successive year realizing, oh, there's this other arena to access, uh, which ultimately led to placing festivals like Lollapalooza or Austin City Limits or New Orleans Jazz Festival. But it's all very incremental. Just that process uh, is one so much, of, of, as you said, it's like discovery, finding opportunity, seeing where the response is and trying to align like the business model. And as you said, like finding the team, having to manage the business, that part has been a big challenge for me. I mean, I've really had to like up my game with that because that was not originally part of the fantasy. Same with, by the way, the recording studio, that was very intimidating for me uh, initially, but over time, just realizing in terms of being autonomous and being able to shape the creative aspect, it was really necessary to be the kind of producer and engineer I wanted to be, which is a completely different skill set from like a songwriter or performer. I really needed to devote a lot of time and energy to to getting those skills together. And it's the same on uh, the business management side. And so all it's all a big work in progress, but like multiple skill sets that often don't really have anything to do with each other are necessary to run this tiny business that I've got. Yeah. And it's so interesting because uh, you, as a, as a singer, songwriter, as a performer, it's so clear what the value proposition is. And anyone who knows your music or has seen you get up on stage uh, or, or has seen you um, uh, on television, you know, performing for a group, uh, you fill the room with joy. People get involved. They're infected by the enthusiasm. It's, it is, it's a joy fest. And so the value proposition is so clear. And, and so it doesn't surprise me that your career as it has evolved is, you know, what I would say the way you describe it is it's demand driven, right? So the more people who saw you, the more people wanted you to do that. Hey, can you come do that for me? Hey, can you come do that for me? And pretty soon you're, you're on the road, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and then you're, and then pretty soon you have demand for making uh, records and pretty soon Penguin Random House is saying, Hey, uh, can you do a, a book and uh, and then uh, how about multiple books? And you've got uh, is Lila Tov good night in Hebrew or Lila Tov means good night in Hebrew, right? Right. That's one. That, so that is what you just referenced is one of my children's books. It's based on a, a lullaby. So it's originally original song and then transformed into a picture book, which is a narrative of a, a refugee family 
uh, and with beautiful illustrations by a, a remarkable illustrator. But yeah, the only Hebrew in the in the manuscript is actually Lila Tov. And then Senorita Mariposa, right? That's another one of your books. Yeah, that's another one. That's about, uh, again, it started off as a song. And Mariposa, for those of you listening and don't know, is a word for butterfly in Spanish. And you know, it's an interesting process to to try to adapt these art forms. So, for example, uh, Senorita Mariposa as a song was really just sort of a tribute to a beautiful butterfly. But to function as a standalone picture book without the context of the music, it became the story of the migration of uh, the monarch butterfly from Canada the, in the United States to the mountains of Michoacan in Mexico. So that's been that's been a really interesting new process uh, in terms of diversifying into these other ways of of reaching children, families, and teachers. You know, everything you're talking about is is a demand driven career that there's more and more demand. And um, uh, we're going to take a break in a second. But what what I want to what I want to uh, drill down on is, you know, here to be an artist whose work is in such great demand to be an artist who whenever you perform, whenever you deliver, uh, you bring joy that people are delighted by what you do, you know, but to have to grapple with the, the, the realities of the business side of it. I, I, I want to explore that. I want to learn more about your experience with that and how you have managed to add that whole repertoire to your, uh, to your skill set. To be discussed. All right, so we're going to take a little break. Uh, we're with Ben Gunersheimer, the Grammy Award-winning Mr. G, and we'll be back in, in just a minute. Hello, everyone. This is Mark Plingsheim with the Motivated to Lead podcast. Each week, we interview leaders, and they share lessons learned from their careers. Our goal is to help you become a better leader. Bruce has been a guest on our show, and he shared some great content. And each week, we interview uh, people like Bruce, who uh, bring some some great information to help you grow as a leader. If you're enjoying this show, I think you would enjoy Motivated to Lead. You can subscribe or listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this show. Looking forward to having you join us at Motivated to Lead. All right, we are back with my dear friend, Ben Gunersheimer, Grammy award-winning artist, author, activist, and educator. Uh, where we left off, we were talking about how Ben, uh, when, when he starts uh, writing songs, people listen. When he starts playing, people gather around. Um, and and uh, his career as, as a rock star, as the famous Mr. G, the, the multicultural activist, educator, uh, musician, it's a calling, I think, but uh, the, 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 it's a demand-driven business, right? You, when you play, people, uh, people come. So how did you uh, tackle the business side of this? Well, first of all, I haven't tackled it. It's a work in progress. And that's been the biggest challenge for me. You know, the, the, the performing, writing songs, um, that component was quite instinctive and it's such, you know, people tend to do the stuff that brings them joy. Well, that's been, that was fun and relatively easy for me. So that's what I practiced. And that's, uh, that's, you know, where people clap, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's what people who get into the performing arts, they like that, you know, right, right. um, the business side, I didn't recognize for years that that was something I really needed to prioritize. I mean, to the extent, I'll give you one example, like I mentioned earlier in the show that, the first Mr. G gigs came about playing birthday parties of these students that I had. 
and literally the first one was my wife came across like a, a coffee stained napkin with a phone number on it and asked me what it was about. And I couldn't remember for a while. And then I said, Oh yeah, I think it's that parent, that parent who wants me to play a birthday party. She's like, uh, we should make sure we call that person back. And, you know, she was the organized one who was like, we need a database. She, you know, there is really no Mr. G project without my wife, Catherine getting involved and who had small business skills and getting us organized and, putting systems in place. And, you know, I was, to me, some of that stuff felt uptight. I was, I always had this clueless idea that the art just happens and the business then naturally unfolds without understanding to what extent you really need to consciously run that side of it. And regardless of how talented anyone is, um, you need to have a team together and run a, a responsible and organized business uh, where you have good relationships with your clients and act professionally and decently to people. That's a huge component of it. And so that's the part, you know, in terms of my wife was very involved with the business for years, but now is not. And so I've needed to step up more in terms of managing the team. And um, that part uh, has been a challenge, but it's also another side that's gratifying in terms of learning that those are some skills that I can step into, but that I I probably wouldn't have if I if it wasn't demanded of me. Yeah, because I mean, I guess it's a classic uh, story. It's a classic archetype of the immensely talented person, or you know, even immensely talented and skilled person with the will to to perform and the will to succeed, who somehow uh, doesn't get a chance, right? Because uh, nobody knows about that person for sure. And, and so uh, how, how do you – so it's great to have a spouse who uh, is talented at uh, getting things organized, at setting up the database, at making the connections, at doing the business side. You said you're now having to step into that yourself. And I would guess that part of that, it must be a little awkward. Like, man, if somebody gets a call from Mr. G, like you say, hey, it's Mr. G calling. Well, the Mr. G, you're calling me yourself. It'd be, you know, it's like if, if Bob Dylan called, you know, or, or Paul McCartney, you'd be like, wow, you, you're calling me yourself. Wow. So in some ways it could be exciting, but in other ways, it's got to be a little distracting. I don't know if you know how people feel on the other side, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this as I got older and started to sort of reevaluate my take on what what's called rock stardom meant. I got increasingly turned off by like the aloof rock star. I, I like when artists can just be down to earth and accessible to the public. So for example, after our shows, like I immediately get off the stage and then go and meet people. To me, that's just to get human and real with people. And so it's similarly I'm happy to, you know, if I've got the time and it's, it, it's a call that needs making, I'm happy to reach out to to people who are in the publishing industry or presenters who are talking about doing shows, you know, just person to person. I mean, uh, there, there's all this artifice that's built up around um, celebrity culture, particularly like rock and roll stuff. And I, I was seduced by it as a kid, but over time I got sort of turned off by it. So I, I like to kind of go the other way with that stuff. And so it gives you a chance to be authentic because you, you, you have a pretty easy way with people. As long as we're getting along, we do. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, but of course, the children uh, can't make the business decision to hire you. Well, so during the pandemic, I mean, you and I have, have a lot in common. Among the things we have in common 
you know, we found ourselves running small businesses in order to make uh, what we do available to um, audiences or to decision makers. Um, but but the other thing is, you know, like I stand on stage and give speeches. Um, boy, it's been tough selling hot air to auditoriums full of people during the pandemic. And And what was that pivot like for you? Shocking and jarring, but also I think if you have some inherent entrepreneurial orientation, you snap into action and figure out the next move. And so at that moment, uh, like March, 2020, Lila Tove Goodnight had just come out and we had just started a national book tour. We're about to play the 150th anniversary concert of, at Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Like there was a lot of stuff lined up. And of course it all got washed away. I spent a day or two just kind of processing like the calendar is suddenly empty and then it was like, well, what are we going to do? And so I created something called Mr. G TV, which was a weekly series of virtual concerts from my studio where I play live songs, but also incorporate collaborators from around the world, just patch them in on zoom and broadcast these. It was fascinating right away to be able to connect with people uh, of course, we had challenges. We had technical challenges. The, the financial model wasn't established yet, but it was a way to keep connecting with audiences and suddenly have an experience which we never really had before, which was I'd be in my studio. People were watching and commenting from all over the world. And that was a revelation and continues to be, frankly, like the potential of the virtual space to be... Um, you know, both of us have talked about, we, you know, we've sort of like traveling salesmen have been on the road forever. There's something to be said for the impact you can have doing virtual performances without the wear and tear of, of getting on planes and, and flying around the world. So um, that was one component of adapting to the pandemic and then going down the philanthropic paths of finding out like, well, who can support this type of work because this entailed a whole video production team and suddenly a different model. But now we're in it again, frankly. I mean, we were live shows were just starting to come back. And now with the Delta variant, presenters, of course, are, are pulling back. But at this point, I've been through enough of these ups and downs. It's just like, well, just keep figuring out the next move. And so you've sort of developed some entrepreneurial calluses, so to speak. Yeah. And it seems like uh, now I feel like, um, okay, well, I'm back on the road uh, myself as well, but it also seems like, well, now maybe not. And gee, it's a darn good thing we put in this TV studio. Absolutely, no, I'm 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 back on the road as well. But I, look, going into the future, uh, I anticipate and really would like to retain some aspect of the virtual sort of hybrid performance event. And there is some advantage to it, right? I mean, you 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 have audiences all over the world, and it's it's not so easy to get to Thailand, right, or or whatever. And then there are other advantages that I've come to realize having done so many virtual concerts now. For example, you know, in a, in a theater, only the first you know X number of rows have that real sense of immediacy with with an artist. If you're at the back of the theater, the person's small. On a virtual broadcast, you know, the artist is big and in front of you, but also in terms of adapting what performances can look like to incorporate questions from kids, from teachers, to um, reading the book and showing the illustrations. There are different ways to just work with that technology to harness what it can deliver that shows on a stage can't. 
and uh, try to maximize that. Not to mention like different camera angles and just try, we've tried to very consciously sort of raise the bar in the children's music space of what a virtual show can look like with multi-camera shoots and professional audio capture and all that and, and patching in musicians and collaborators from around the world. So again, work in progress, but like there's a lot of opportunity there as well. And then it turns out there's a lot of demand happily from schools and libraries and theaters who, um, you know, otherwise just can't bring performers in now and are, are seeing this as a way forward and, and reaching out to us. In terms of the business model, how much have you had to make that up as you go along? That's all been made up. I mean, truly, I mean, from the get go, like there's not, there's not, um, you know, to go back to like call it the indie rock singer songwriter path that I started on, there's a certain um, trajectory in terms of playing the the venues you would play in a certain town. And as you move up the ladder, the kids music uh, world is so dispersed. And it's also fascinating because like you're in New Haven. If you go to New Haven, there's there there's certain there's a 200 seat club, there's a 500 seat club, there's a thousand seat club theater, and that's it. You know, pretty much in the kids' music, like every school is a potential gig, every library is a potential gig. Uh, but you know, in terms of running a business that can sustain not only yourself but a small team, um, the economics don't deliver at that level. So at a certain point, you if you want to scale it up, you have to find um, you know, venues that, uh, and presenters with larger budgets and, and different ways to, to build the business and there's no real model for it. So it's, it's a lot of, um, analysis and, and trial and error and, but then just finding the opportunities when they present to themselves. And in that sense, I'm guessing that the, the pandemic and the need to be able to go virtual gives you a whole new set of tools in your toolkit for making your music available to folks who maybe, uh, you know, you'd have had to travel around uh, to, to, to get it to them. Yeah, absolutely. And whether it's, it's new audience members or finding ways to sustain relationships with older partners, like for example, one relationship that we've had now for years is with a national nonprofit environmental uh, advocacy group called Moms Clean Air Force. You know, the way that a relationship originally started, we had performed at the Philadelphia Zoo. A mom and her got on the mailing list with her kids and bought some CDs. And years later, she contacts us when she's working for this group, Moms Clean Air Force, which leads ultimately to us doing these annual events on Capitol Hill, uh, where they bring in kids and families from all 50 states to lobby Congress. So for years, we would do this concert on Capitol Hill. Well, last year, that wasn't going to happen, but we pivoted and did it as a virtual event from the Academy of Music Theater in our town, uh, Northampton, Mass. But like five or six cameras and kids on and families on Zoom from all over the country, but also like Congress people and senators patching in their, their clips. So, you know, that was a way to continue sustaining that relationship and connecting with those people during the pandemic. So it's it's not just, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because it's not just the joy, it's not just the art, it's not just the children and the parents, uh, but there's a lot of mission. Uh, you manage to do a lot of mission-driven work with your music and with your performing. Um, and I know one of the, the missions you've pursued is um, environmentalism. What's that like uh, trying to, I mean, it's you're, you're doing so much, you're doing... 
uh, multicultural work, you're doing art, you're doing performance. Uh, you have to interface with the business component of that to make it sustainable. But, but there's also a lot of mission in your work. Again, it's just natural. It's just what I find fulfilling. And particularly getting into writing for kids and families, if, if you think of it in terms of nutrition, like I don't, I don't want to feed them cotton candy uh, from a musical perspective, from a music production perspective, from a performance perspective, and also from the songwriting. I mean, it's just like, conversely, I don't like it when people are too overt with that stuff. I don't, you know, that it, it's all like the way mission can be handled in art. Uh, is delicate because it can quickly move into polemics. So, you know, to me, there's this delicate line to walk where from a musical perspective, there's enough that's compelling rhythmically, melodically, sonically, so that the teaching, let's call it, a, whether it's about recycling, for example, becomes transparent uh, because the song's so much fun and or and rhythms are funky or there's something catchy there. And then it just happens to be, we're talking about picking up trash or whatever the thing might be. So that's an interesting challenge right there, but uh, one that I, I'm happy to take up because I feel like that's where the mission can really be delivered when the people receiving the message are loving the music or the, the book, they'll delve much deeper into the content of it. Uh, your songs are very catchy. If you get a song you know, stuck in your head, if the message is not just heartwarming not just fun, uh, but especially when it comes to children, if if they're they're getting a message in their head uh, that's that's worthwhile and that's that's got some learning in it. I mean, I still sing schoolhouse rock songs to myself. I don't know what that says about me, but but there is something. I mean, you know, music is great for the brain. I know it's good for growing the brain, but it's also a great way to learn, right? I mean, people do learn stuff differently as a result of learning uh, something to music. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of what it says about you, it's just, it, it says what it says about me too. And, and pretty much everybody else is just like very impressionable and, and music is extremely impactful uh, and formative, particularly when we're young. So that's an opportunity and it, music has a capacity to engage that is unique so I, I think it's a really, it's like a powerful tool and it's like a, you know, something that can be used for good or evil, I almost think in, 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 in a binary terms, you know, and it's similar, like, what are we feeding our kids? Um, so trying to make it something that's like nutritious, but also funky and fun. Talking with you, it always comes home to me how much it, it does give you pleasure to play music. It gives you pleasure to be around children that you have sort of um, had the good fortune of being able to do these things. You say they come naturally. Uh, being uh, mission-driven comes naturally. Uh, music comes naturally. Writing songs comes naturally. Is the, the money side of it the part that's least natural? Yeah. I mean, having to, act, having to, to mingle art with commerce, I somehow went a long time without really internalizing how, if you actually, it seems so obvious now, but want to have it be a business, those two are going to have to be joined. And how do you, how do you navigate that? The, all the different components of, of business. And I, frankly, I have to say, like, 
there's a real cutthroat element to the music industry. And I thought I was getting away from that when I got into kids music, but it exists there as well. I mean, so there's, there's the element of competition that you would find in the court, you know, I think in the corporate, I mean, I could tell stories about like the Grammy scene or just all kinds of things. So it's, it's, it's hardball. Um, and so those things weren't what I was expecting, but uh, it's reality and you got to either adapt or get out because that's just, the way it is. Yeah. Because in the end, if you want the opportunities and you want the money, somebody else does too. And they're, they're going to come try to eat your lunch. Absolutely. And I, you know, I wonder if there's any aspect of, uh, you know, if you really want it, somebody else wants it too. At the same time, one of the things that I've found liberating about, uh, particularly the children's music space is because it is kind of like the wild west. I found it to be a place where I can really explore what interests me artistically, you know, as a someone who likes to write and perform in many different styles of music and likes to produce in the studio, you know, it, I've written rock, reggae, bluegrass, bossa nova, rockabilly, <laughs> whatever comes to mind can be a valid song to have on a Mr. G album. And if you're, you know, James Taylor, or the Rolling Stones, like you've got your sonic identity and when people deviate from that, there's a lot of skepticism from the fan base often. And, and that's a lot of artists kind of stay in their lane. Sometimes there are people who are not as curious and they don't think to explore other things. But, you know, the people I uh, admired so much as a kid were people like David Byrne or Peter Gabriel or Sting, Paul Simon, who kept exploring sonically, artistically and collaborating with different people. So that, that's been a, a real model. So uh, just to have the curiosity and find the opportunity, but it also helps, you know, in terms of being in an industry where honestly, there's just not much money to be made. And so you don't have people chasing after it in the same way that people are trying to get a market share of like the telecommunications industry or big pharma, you know? So it's, it's funny. You have to hustle in the same way, but the payout isn't as big. Yeah. Well, but, and it, but it, to your point about exploring different sounds, Children are a more forgiving audience in that respect. You know, I don't know about that. I feel like I've I've always approached this uh, from the perspective of that. Um, and I know you I, you don't mean condescending when you say forgiving, kid. You know, but I I want to take this to the place where I think there's a lot of schlocky content that is marketed towards kids because. People, whether they're artists or or business people, feel like kids are more forgiving. When I've I tend to feel like kids, I, I give them that benefit of the doubt. They can tell the difference. They can appreciate it. And and even if they can't, give them something better. You know, go the extra mile to like create craft a great song and produce it with great musicians and mix it with a great engineer and like bring that same type of attitude and and commitment and integrity to the performance. And, and this is an important point. Like the kids never listen to this music by themselves. They're, they're always parents and teachers in the car, in the audience. And there's always this multi-generational component. So to me, I'm always thinking like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm writing this song. I want kids to love it. But I also want like if the parent is a professional musician or a professional engineer, producer to, to be like, wow, that's really cool. The way that mix sounds or like the proficiency of the, the and sensitivity of the musicians. And so just to bring that to, to the uh, craft of it. 
Yeah, I mean, your your songs are very sophisticated, and I think you know to the extent that you've got adults there listening, the adults are smiling to themselves and you know probably tickled by the sophistication. When I said forgiving, I meant that like the the kids would be less likely to hold you to a particular genre. Totally. And yeah, absolutely. And, and they're less likely to hold it to a genre. And what can be viewed as a liability or with skepticism in the grown up world where people tend to be more in a certain genre in the children's space, I've found there's been a lot of uh, a lot of interest in that because there are frankly, there aren't a lot of children's artists who are writing in these different languages or exploring these different styles. So it's been a way uh, to operate from a position of my own creative interests and what brings me joy and my curiosity, uh, but also then finding a receptive audience that, that values that on the other side and sees how that's uh, distinct from, from maybe other artists that they've come across who are writing for kids and families. And what, what, what is for you, what's the most gratifying thing about, about working with children, families, teachers? I mean, I think it's so much about well, back when we used to perform live all the time, it's such a visceral experience to be a performing artist in this way and to stand on a stage where and, and, and sing your songs and have a crowd, a theater full of people responding and almost like pressing the emotional buttons that you want. You want them to everyone to jump and clap. That's happening or have everyone be calm and or contemplative, you know, to be able to, to control the audience. And that, but really to have the response after these shows and people tell you how the music has impacted their life and their family. And yeah, it's uh, I know, you know, having seen children and their parents um, in your audiences, it ends up being a highlight of whatever it is they're doing. Uh, if they make it into one of your audiences, it's a highlight of their day, their weekend, their week. Uh, it's a highlight of their year. Uh, people talk about it um, for for a long time to come. And um, one thing you must have is um, is a lot of appreciation. For sure. Ben Gundersheimer. Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you again for thinking to have me on the show. It's just always great to talk to you. In our next episode, I'll talk with my new friend, Alec Whiteman, author of Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan. And uh, get this, he was chairman of the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.